Alright, so this is something new that I'm going to try. Welcome to the confessional. So this is going to be a bit more stream of consciousness. My nerve levels is R. Levels is plural. My nerve levels are about as high as when I normally do one of my standard, let's call them teaching, sermon, whatever, my normal talks. But unlike those, believe it or not, those have formed thoughts, this one is really just going to be a buckle up because here we go. I'm going to get everything that I can out in real time. For the sake of genuine authenticity. And I find this interesting because this is really kind of self-centered if you think about it, or at least it could be. But it's like, why would you, why would you listen to this? Why would this be popular? But I've seen some YouTube channels and for goodness sake, the freaking Kardashians were famous. So I'm sure there's somebody out there who would be willing to listen to me. And possibly get some benefit from it. And by that, I simply mean an insight, a perspective. Not that I'm necessarily trying to teach, but if there's anything that I say that could be helpful in orienting one's perspective, coming to terms with an issue, or even just being brave enough to confess, then that is why I'm entering the confessional. So, I'm a word guy. I teach Latin. Fun fact, though not for very much longer. Sad face. The word confess comes from a deponent Latin verb. The fact is deponent doesn't mean anything to you, but I think it's a fun fact. It comes from a deponent verb, which means to confess, which can mean to admit, acknowledge, reveal, or disclose. And ultimately, it comes from a root word meaning to say or speak. And so, far beyond simply admitting I did X. Okay. Well, it's kind of like when my students look at me and they say, I left my computer charger at home and my computer is almost dead. I, I like shift my eyes for a little bit. I'm like, the sky is blue. You're wearing green. The moon's not made of cheese. And they look at me aghast and confused. I'm like, you gave me a basic statement, a statement of fact, a statement that I probably do need to know, but what do you want me to do with it? I don't just go, yep, okay. So confession, then, this idea of disclosing and revealing is far more than simply admitting to a deed done or a word said or a thought thought. So if we go to 1 John, probably the, uh, I guess, a quintessential verse on confessing. He says, if we confess our sins, he... God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all all unrighteousness. Well, even before that, that's verse 9 of chapter 1, before that in verse 7. But if we walk in light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins as as part of walking in the light, then he is faithful and just, forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So these go hand in hand. Part of walking in the light is A, yeah, not sinning, but good luck with that. But then B, when we do, to confess it, to disclose it, to reveal it, but not just the deed itself. It's not, hey, I slept with this person, or I drank this thing, or, you know, I yelled at my cat and traumatized her. It's deeper than that. It's actually discussing the... Yes, doing that, but why? Where am I? What am I thinking? How am I processing? 
how do I move forward? Do I want to move forward? Am I going to move forward? We're going to move forward because I'm not dead unless I'm planning on that, which I'm not. But it's like confession is revealing and disclosing everything about what you have or are thought or felt or what you currently are thinking or feeling as it's wrapped up in the various things like the sinful actions that you do particularly, but also even just anything else. Which is why St. Augustine's Confessions is an autobiography. But it's not an autobiography of just facts, like, hey, here's my life, I hope you find it interesting. But it's specifically him disclosing, at different points in his life, things he did or thought, and the why, and the perspective, and how all of that comes together to give us a full understanding of him. And then ideally to constantly keep in mind the desire to be open and of service to God for when we hold anything back from those who love us and whom we love fellowship is broken or at least hindered and we don't actually move forward we don't actually grow Mature. Alright, so, coming back, confession. So, like I said, a bit more stream of consciousness. These are usually going to be catalyzed by possibly a sermon or a podcast or something I read or something someone said that's just gotten me thinking. And so, usually, if I'm going to begin a confession, I'll say, hey, I've been thinking. To which people who know me are going to look at me with a half-cock-eyed smirk as if to say, shocker. I would have never guessed. So, I've been thinking. And in a recent sermon series, a current sermon series, the church which I attend, we're going through the book of James. And I like James. I like him a lot. And we're in chapter 4. And it has some real, I call them Hobby Lobby verses, those things that we pull out of context. And they're true. And you can gauge some of the basic core truth of them in isolation. But we like to pull them out, put them on distressed wood, Maybe a little frame, some cute calligraphy, and stick it on our cross wall, or on a bumper stick. Hobby Lobby verses. And it's got verses like that, such as, um, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? I really want to be smarky. Does people, do people know what enmity means? Look it up. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Okay. Some great Hobby Lobby quotable stuff there. What does it mean? Well, like my pastor said, we really want to back up. And one of the things that James is noting is just some of the basic contentions within the church to which he's writing, which basically means that what he's pointing out is that the people in the church are actually just being human. And people suck. And these are the very things that we need to be growing out of as we grow in maturity and sanctification and the restoration of what the human being in the image of God is actually supposed to be. All right, so at the end of chapter 3, James mentions that uh, he, he throws out a rhetorical question that's kind of a gut punch. Who's wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. 
This isn't wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. I'm going to skip a little bit. One of the things we want to know that I'm always afraid of, I probably just don't give people too much credit, is that jealousy and selfish ambition, this isn't caricatured. This isn't strong bad, if you know Home Star Runner, sitting there with his gloved hands going, hee hee hee. With like selfish ambition, I'm going to tackle everybody, step on the bodies of babies to get to you know my ultimate goals of owning a pizza parlor. This isn't anything like that. But ambition is simply that which drives us. Sometimes at a point of consuming us with self-centeredness and myopathy. And a lot of times, not always, but uh, ambition can go hand in hand with jealousy. And jealousy is this idea that something is rightfully mine or ought rightfully to be mine. And so I am going to pursue it. And if somebody has it, I am going to take it because it is rightfully mine. And even if it's rightfully theirs, it's rightfully mine more. And so we contend. What causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? So passions there. I like the Latin word, patiors, where we get things for patience. It basically just means to suffer. But the Greek word is this idea of like desires. So basically the things that you want, the things that you think you need, are... When James says that war within you is this idea of like they're, ah, uh, it's one of those things that all of us have felt, but I don't really know how to put it into words. It's that thing you feel kind of like in the gut of your, like the pit of your stomach. The, the various conflicting desires that you have and how they can drive you and how they can make you insecure, how they can make you focused. Basically, you've got conflicting priorities and most of those priorities are those Things which you have deemed good for your own pleasure. And again, pleasure here can't be caricatured. It's this idea of living what you have determined to be a pleasant life. Basically, at this point, we can just go say, see the Beatitudes and how Jesus completely flip-turns what the concept of a blessed life is on its head. But that's basically what people here are striving after. They're striving after what they think is a blessed, good, fulfilling life. And the way to get that is to by pursue these various things, these priorities that they think are going to produce that, that they think they're entitled to, that they think they have to compete against other people with. And the drive for these things is so myopic that they strive for these things far more than they strive for the kingdom of God. I say they, I should just be saying we. So it's like, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire, and you don't have, so you murder. Now, the pastor pointed out that likely people ain't killing each other left and right to get stuff. But what if James is being intentionally hyperbolic? It's like shock, shock value. And he's saying that you desire something, and you don't have it, so you attack the person who does. You tear them down. You go after them. You sabotage them. You may as well all but murder them because the animosity that you have towards them because of this thing which they have, which you want, is so strong. You desire something. You don't have it. And so you attack the person who does. 
in order to make it available for yourself to possibly get. You covet and you do not obtain. So you fight and you quarrel. Covet basically meaning somebody else literally does have something and you pine for it. You're envious for it. And this is, I guess, where the confessional comes into play. If one of my good friends, or if any of my good friends are listening to this, a couple in particular, literally a couple, because a couple means two, they're going to understand this entirely. There are things which I am prone to covet. Now, kind of a roundabout way I'm blessed is that if they have it, I don't begrudge them, but it makes my own perspective of myself, at least, especially in comparison to them, very warped and distorted. And it actually causes quarreling to an extent. And it's because the thing that's at the center of our conversation, which actually hinders our relationship because of the way in which I see myself in terms of it and them, it causes friction. My covetousness of this thing which I feel like I cannot obtain causes barriers which therefore result in quarrelings, even academic ones, on just the nature of like, Justin, you shouldn't be feeling this way. This is irrational. Like, I know, but anyway, we're fighting. Well, then James hits the obvious. Okay, so you don't have these things. Well, just ask. Jesus says, ask. So James is like, okay, you ask. and You, do not, um, you don't have because you don't ask. So instead of scheming, like some kind of a sinister Zach Morris, there's a good say about a bell reference. How about you just ask God for it? You know, isn't he supposed to give good gifts to his children? Because, you know, you being fathers, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more so than your, like your father in heaven? Just ask. Well, we all know that we might ask for X or Y, and like, no, we don't get it. Well, James, it's another thing. Okay, so let's say you do ask, but you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Okay, so before we get into that, here's the thing that just really struck me, and I promise I'm going to swing it back home to the actual confessional and not have it be another lesson. But you ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Again, to spend it on your passions is to pursue those things in life, in living life in this world that I think I want or need in order to be happy and secure. And so this is where the rubber hits the road. I'm thinking in particular of, I'm going to use tangible examples, some of which are ones that have been brought to my attention by friends, all of which are ones that have crossed my mind for myself. But what are some of the things that you might ask for? A wife? Or a spouse? A car? Friends, a house, kids, I'm not sure if I said a job yet, a scholarship, the ability to go to this school, the ability to live here, any number of things. But we don't receive them when we ask for them, even when we pray for them. Why? Because I think that wife is going to make me whole. That wife is going to be my whole world, which means that wife is all about me. Everything I phrase is in terms of her, but no, she's actually all about me. 
why do I not have these kids? I've prayed for them. Could it possibly be because I'm going to be that parent that receives the child and I'm going to cuckoo over them like a little kitten and I'm never going to want them to grow up? God forbid I actually approach them like somebody harvesting, which is how God approaches us. God doesn't want us to stay infantile just so he can gawk at us like a little plaything that never changes. He wants us to change for our own sake. But is the kid going to be something that makes me happy? That I use as an object for my fulfillment? Live vicariously through? Love because I have nothing else to love? Or is it going to be a good gift that's mine to nurture for the sake of the kingdom of God? Like a farmer growing wheat. The farmer grows the wheat Yes, to be fed himself, but he harvests that wheat. He sells that wheat, and that wheat becomes bread for thousands. Why do I want this car? Why do I want this job? Do I want a manual transmission just so I can feel like a real man in a big boys club because my two best friends drive manual transmissions and I don't feel like I'm part of the gang and I'm deficient? Or, if you can hear that, my cat is being crazy in the background. I'm not entirely sure why. She's digging the DVDs out of the DVD thing. Oh, there's your confession, I guess. Or, do I want a manual transmission car for I can't even really think of a good godly reason other than just sometimes it is good to ask God for things that we do genuinely desire and sometimes he blesses us with them just because. But I can't think of another good reason as to why I want a manual transmission car. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity towards God? Is my goal to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and let all these other things be added to me as is good and right? Or am I seeking these things which I think I need and to which I believe myself vehemently to be entitled so that I may use them for my purposes as I see fit based on my warped perspective doing what is right in my eyes and therefore not have good fellowship or community or friendship with other people and hold back and envy and quarrel and be animalous. Animosities? I really don't know what word to use there. Huh. And so this is the part that got me, actually, if you can believe it. I haven't gotten there yet. For you suppose it is to no purpose that Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So we need to flip over. That's Proverbs 3.34. A couple things. That's Kings, Chronicles, Job. Job's fantastic. Proverbs, not yet. Too many Psalms. Proverbs 3.44, at least in Hebrew, phrases it differently. Toward the scorners, he is scornful, but to the humble, he gives favor. It's actually pretty on point because the English word grace comes from a Latin word, which basically means favor. You know, it's a favor that someone bestows upon you. And so what's interesting here, I think, is that when it talks about giving grace to the humble, 
those who are proud and are going to pursue their objectives for their purposes, God's going to stand back and be like, okay, go for it. Maybe I'll let you get it. It'll turn out to your detriment. Maybe I don't let you get it. It'll turn out to your detriment. One way or another, eventually, yeah, go ahead, spin your wheels. Oh, you're going to be humble now. Oh, you actually recognize your position before me. You recognize what true flourishing is. You recognize what true holiness is. You recognize what it is to pursue the kingdom of God for the sake of others and to the glory of Christ. Let me help you. There's the favor that he shows to the humble. To the humble, he will extend the merciful grace to help us actually live in humility. To let go of desires we ought not to have. To reorient, to learn how to better ask for the ones that we want. To talk about the ones that we want. To talk through, to confess. I want this, I want a stick shift car because I want to feel like part of the boys club. I want a stick shift car because I'm comparative. I want a stick shift car because I've actually really wanted one for years, even before I knew the two of y'all. And I've never really been able to get one or drive one. Talk through these things. And in doing so, God will grant you the mercy through his grace to lay some aside, to go through, to actually learn how to ask for certain things rightly. And then maybe actually get them. And when you do, you'll use them in such a way, continuing with him, that in some fashion you might not understand when you get it serves to advance his purposes. I could probably say the same thing over and over again. We're running short on time. But anyway, there's the confessional. Those are the ideas that struck me. And it's an exercise for me to just be open and share my thoughts. And I hope that the perspectives shared were helpful. And that you may be encouraged to confess others so i guess minor confession the two friends that i mentioned they're probably going to listen to this at some point eventually before we all die i get nervous that you know in my head i think oh, how many people are going to listen to this over the course of time i don't necessarily like why is he referencing this i thought that was just between us you gotta get i've also learned from talking with the two of them from confessing that a lot of these fears that i have are irrelevant well it's not that they're irrelevant they're irrational i know that but they are they're specters. The things I'm afraid of, the thing, the ways in which I'm afraid that they will react or think, they actually don't even cross their mind until I tell them that I'm afraid of them. Something else I learned recently. Such are the benefits of confession.